0: Empathy is killing us. A little bit of a dramatic uh, title, but if any of you read the veterinary press or attend these webinars or, in fact, work in a veterinary practice, you probably fully understand that our profession is frustrated and and damaged by uh, massive attrition from the profession, burnout of vets and nurses, um, and anxiety and stress throughout is, is sort of a key feature of modern day veterinary practice. Um, and there's a lot being written about it, a lot being talked about, and a lot of initiatives coming out of it, which is great. Um, but you yes, sort of a little bit of, you know, hashtag B kind on the bottom of your email on your Instagram doesn't seem to be really shifting the needle. So what this is tonight is an attempt to look at a little bit of the research and trying to get underneath uh, the bonnet of this a little bit and say, so where's this coming from? What's part of it? And by by no means this is comprehensive, but it's just a, some interesting research that's uh, come through that I thought I'd share. But what I'd really like to do is offer some practical suggestions of um, what to do about it. How can we actually start to moderate this uh, in our own practices, across the profession and in different ways? And this is not corporate or independent. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the grassroots of being a vet or a nursing practice is really uh, the key thing we're looking here. So... A couple of um, definitions. Perhaps empathy is what's going to come up a lot. That's the ability to understand, share the feeling of another. So if you've been in any sort of work or relationship, you can understand that, that feeling of that. Compassion is a slightly different thing. Compassion is literally the means to suffer together. The feeling that arises when you're confronted with another's suffering but feel motivated to relieve that suffering. So within this, there's a motivation to do something. Um, rather than just have the feeling, okay, so compassion is not the same as empathy, or even altruism, which we'll mention later, altruism is actually the, the, the feeling of doing something for a greater good beyond yourself, uh, so a little bit self-sacrificing through that, though all these concepts are related, um, it's what we want to get to. On the flip side of those, compassion fatigue is that constant strain of feeling another's pain. So it's specifically in the domain of interpersonal relationships, feeling someone else's difficulty, pain, emotional stress, and taking that on yourself. Burnout sort of runs with that. It's a state of emotional, mental, often physical exhaustion. Um, And I think most people on this call have probably had a taste of that somewhere in their lives, brought on by prolonged or repeated stress. Now, burnout's not the same as compassion fatigue because burnout can come from a lot of different sources, internal stress, external stress, and not necessarily interpersonal stress. However, the symptoms can be confused or often seen as the same thing. Compassion fatigue can often be relieved by taking time out. Burnout is a different factor. It often cannot be. It's a much deeper malaise and much harder to, to to work on. So just some definitions of where we're going with this. Now, just first part of research. Here's sort of a, a little um, study from the BEVA, BSAVA recruitment retention survey. Not a not a scientific investigation, but it was a survey of the profession in 2019. They asked this question: what is the one th- single thing you dislike the most about being in the veterinary profession? And they asked that to veterinary nurses and veterinary surgeons. You can see this in this word cloud, which isn't scientifically validated, but in this word cloud, clients came up a huge amount. There was this deep, deep feeling that clients were a big part of the problem in our profession. Obviously, in there was hours and work and pay and other such things. So that was sort of the start of that sense of in that. A follow-up study, and this was done by uh, Elizabeth Armage Chan at the RVC. This was a nice little study she did. Uh, looking at um, how vets deal with difficult clients, essentially. So I'll I'll sort of read this through because it's interesting where it comes from. The paper argued that learning to form positive client relationships in difficult situations leads to vets who are more resilient and have greater mental well-being. So that's what we're after, this resilience and greater mental well-being. Of course, what we've got to figure out here, which way does it go? Are resilient vets with greater mental well-being, are they more likely to form client relationships or, or is it the other way around is one thing. What she found in the study is during a difficult case with complex conflicting pet and pet owner needs, and that's important, vets who choose to emphasise the client as difficult and unreasonable, so they're pitching the client as just being damn difficult to deal with, often let out those frustrations and anxiety um, and find temporary solace when talking to similarly minded peers or by accessing social media. We open up our soul and our heart and tell people, and that's a very good thing to do. However, the analysis then found a clear sentiment of the client is the enemy. So the feeling that that was a difficult and unreasonable client was exacerbated through the discussions on colleague discussions, and social media, okay? And so what we saw was not a, a, a relief from that feeling, but an exacerbation of it. And, of course, that prevents them from then developing any level of client empathy, because that, that client is the enemy, is reinforced him, And that is impacting their mental health negatively in the long term. So there seems to be a bit of a mixed message in that. We've, we've got this uh, culture that tells us that clients are difficult, and then we find a difficult, client. Right? I told you so, is kind of what comes out of it. So that was an interesting thing, and this pitching of that. There was a second part to this, which I'll come to a little bit later. This is a follow-up, another study to come out in 2020, I think this one was a Canadian study, uh, veter- Veterinarian uh, Mental Health and Client Satisfaction uh, by Parrott and, and um, colleagues in, in, um, in Canada. So the hypothesis they put forward was, Client satisfaction would be positively associated with positive measures of veterinarian mental health, i.e. happy vets, happy clients is kind of the basics of it. High client satisfaction with high vet resilience is what they were expecting to find, and that makes sense. Also, the flip side of that, client satisfaction would be negatively associated with negative measures of veterinarian mental health not very happy vets not very happy clients is kind of what you'd expect from that you know the burnout would lead to uh, low client satisfaction this was sort of um, picked up positive mental health measures have been commonly associated with relatively high patient satisfaction and negative mental health measures with lower satisfaction in the human healthcare field so when there's a direct association between the doctor and the patient you've got this positive correlation Uh, for mental, high mental health measures and client satisfaction and low on the other side. So that was the natural assumption of perhaps what we'd find in the veterinary space. So, again, back to the the medical um, model that we're mimicking here, empathy and empathic behaviours have well-documented association with patient satisfaction, which is great, but also they hypothesise could increase the risk of burnout and compassion fatigue. So here's our clue. While this attempt to maintain high client satisfaction, we need empathetic behaviours and empathetic vets to do so. But a continuous process of that could lead, and this is what they were testing, to risk of burnout and compassion fatigue. So they did, in this study, a slew of um, mental health tests across lots and lots, about 12, 13 domains of mental wellness in vets and then at the same time, they measured the client's satisfaction through um, rather, um, through uh, studies that they, they did with it. Now I won't go through all this, um, but I'll, nearly all of the mental health measures um, didn't come out as a linear equation. Okay, they came what's called a polynomial curve, a linear, whatever that means, um, curve. But basically there wasn't a direct correlation. What they did find, the highest correlations were at the highest or lowest scores for mental health measures. So at high um, mental stress and low mental stress, we saw higher client satisfaction, strangely enough. Okay, which suggests a strange, uh, another variable in this distinct from the medical um, studies we saw earlier. I've highlighted this little piece because we'll come back to this in a bit. Client satisfaction scores or estimated to have the most variation, varied most, across the range of a condition called secondary traumatic stress scores. So it's a, a measure of um, traumatic stress caused by taking on other people's stress. It's called secondary traumatic stress. Um, relative to other health. Care. So that was one of the strongest um, causes of variation in this study. So bear with me as we go through this. Here's some of the results. So you can see in this top line, there's this U-shaped curve. At On the left-hand side, where veterinary perceived stress, anxiety and depression scores are quite low, we saw quite reasonably high or higher um, client satisfaction. As we go through the normal range in the middle, um, that client satisfaction actually dropped. When we get to the right-hand side where these scores for uh, perceived stress, anxiety, depression, emotional distress, etc., were higher. These are that's suffering from mental health issues. Client satisfaction actually went up quite dramatically. So the question again: What is this? A, there's an association, obviously, but what is it causal? And in which direction is what we're looking at here? Now the other ones you can see here is these wavy ones. The ones that go up and down and up again. Um, are showing a different um, way of working. There's sort of a, a, another variable. It starts low, goes high, drops off, and goes high. But most of them end up, go, or those top middle two go up at the end. The particularly most dramatic one is that veterinarian depersonalization score on the right middle right-hand side, okay? As depersonalization, someone who just shuts down from a mental um, engagement perspective with another person, I just shut the shutters, client satisfaction goes up now that's bizarre um what's going on there um and so this was a it's a really long study and took uh, it takes a lot of analysis and they didn't really come up with clear um outcomes from it but this was something they needed to investigate and create a lot of other things some of the things that came out of it the basic premise the higher the client satisfaction scores which is what we all want in our businesses and um, net promoter scores and all the marketing people tell us we've got to get high scores for client satisfaction. At the end of the scales, we're suggestive of poor mental health, perceived stress, anxiety, and emotional exhaustion. So there seems to be a natural correlation, causative or not, between achieving high client satisfaction, but it does drive poor mental health. Okay, so that's that's um, interesting. Why is that so? VET participants with high levels of empathy, so they actually measured empathy as a thing in these VETs, what's their empathetic score, may have, may have had higher levels of client satisfaction, more empathetic, more client satisfaction. That's what we found in the human model, okay, but also experienced higher risk of poor mental health due to emotional labour. So at some point, that high client satisfaction or that high empathy led to poor mental health. Okay, so we tend to assume that empathy is a good trait in human beings, but certainly a good trait in vets and nurses. But the danger of in certain circumstances, and that's perhaps where we have to get to. What's the environmental case for this that actually causes that that shift? This may also explain high levels of client satisfaction in vets with high scores of anxiety, emotion exhaustion, depersonalization. Okay. So if you want high client satisfaction, I'll be very flippant here. Hire a lot of stressed out vets and nurses because that's where client satisfaction may come from in some bizarre way. Let's dig dig into this a little bit further, okay? So compassion was the other thing they could look at. Remember, said empathy and compassion are not the same things. Empathy is the feeling of taking on someone else, and compassion is actually the motivation to do something about it. Okay, and that's an important distinction. Veterinarian compassion satisfaction appeared to have a negative relation with client relationship. The more compassionate that these vets felt or uh, felt for themselves, it drove poorer client satisfaction for some reason. Okay. So that's, that's really the dilemma we've got ourselves into. How can we do that? So this compassion um, second part, it was interesting. So this is where the difference from the human model kicked in. Um, the sources of stress in the veterinary profession has drawn attention to ethical conflict okay so ethical conflict is the are you doing the thing right or doing the right thing and by whom it's that thing that the vets have to deal with because we don't have a one patient to deal with we have a vet client patient relationship within which ethical conflict is built in by its very nature okay so what is the necessary skill here is to differentiate between the vet and patient relationship and the vet and client relationship. They're the two things going on at the same time within a consultation process, okay, which is the difference we see from the medical. It's, and this is a um, hypothesis. So it's possible that while vets derive satisfaction, I feel good about myself, from empathy towards the animal patients, I'm doing good, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing that altruistic thing I've meant to do. But then client satisfaction is more reliant on the expressions of empathy directed at the client. Now, we've already said the client is the enemy. Now, if that's the underlying expression here, we're unlikely to be giving expressions of empathy towards the enemy in a broad sort of way, hopefully that makes sense. So at one level, we're trying to be empathetic, caring and compassionate to the animal. At the same time, holding back perhaps that same empathy and compassion for the client um, in a strange way. So is there a way we can manage and moderate that dilemma? Because that's what it is. It's a huge paradox in every 15-, 20-minute consultation you're doing in some shape or form. Now, I don't know if people feel that in their day-to-day work or even think about that, but my days as vets, I'm sure that was always an issue that's going on. So that's kind of where the research got us. It. So it raises this question. So my my thinking behind so so what's going on there? What's this um, environmental, um, cultural, um, organizational structure that we're working in? Okay, there's vets certainly have a contribution to this. Their own resilience capability, their own way of working, their own mental and emotional uh, strength comes into this. But also there's this environment. Just in a very broad brush, this is things that I see constantly in practice holding us back or holding us within the, in a structure of, of this sort of thinking. Number one, most vets got into veterinary for altruistic reasons. They do it for the job for the animals, and they're not certainly not in it for the money or other reasons. So there is a degree of altruism. I mentioned that earlier. Altruism is this sense of doing stuff for the greater good usually at your own sacrifice in some shape or way, shape or form. Okay? Um, certainly sacrificing money and wages, you saw on that, those, both those lists of what doesn't work in the fashion. pay and, and wages was part of that. But equally, I think there's also um, a, um, a sacrifice of mental health in this as well that we need to be aware of. There is an un- unwritten um, but pervasive social contract that all clients seem to have a right to my time. I see so many businesses reacting, reacting, reacting to client needs and not looking after themselves and not looking after their teams because the clients are demanding. And we don't seem to put any filter or um, curtail the client flow in any shape or form, which I'll come back uh, a little bit in a minute. That's a tend to be very... Uh, perfectionist, controlling, and uh, driven by their expertise is one way they measure themselves, the need to be right rather than the need to do right. And hence, both of those cause ethical dilemmas within the whole process. We, we're very unforgiving for ourselves. And the final one, probably the biggest one of all, I would say, particularly with COVID and other such things, but it was well and truly present before COVID ever showed its face, was busyness. Busyness as an indicator of some level of success. If I ask a business owner, how are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm really busy. It's not what I ask. That's not the question. Anyone can be a busy fool. It's whether you're being productive and whether you're getting stuff done and whether you're keeping yourself right, size. So busyness is a key thing here. And I would first of all urge anyone um, that is, we've got measures for this, is just feeling the strain at the moment. So as we go into the summer months, to do something about cutting back on the busyness of the team, et cetera. But of course, they well that means less clients, less money. Then the business in trouble. I appreciate all that, but there's ways and means around that. But busyness for me, um, the busy trap, as I call it, practice just too busy to practice good customer service. Number one, that's the tension we've got in front of us. Too busy to practice good medicine. We're not even being good vets. Okay, too busy to make any money is certainly something I see day in day out. And too busy to look after your team, which is actually more important at the moment than it has ever been. Busy is not an indicator of success. Busy is just an indicator of stress and being out of flow. On top of that, we know veterinary practice is a very busy, reactive place, and it just is. And it's full of um, resilience blockers, ethical um, problems, and competence threats to any vet or nurse working in it. And of course, the younger you are, the less uh, qualified you are, the more these things start to hit. I talked earlier about secondary traumatic stress. These are all the things, day in, day out, that we have every day. There's never a day we don't have to face one of th- or all of these things in some shape or form, um, hopefully not disciplinary proceedings every day, but certainly those ethical dilemmas of day-to-day dealing with this cause repeated trauma, okay? And then every client that comes in feeds that with secondary trauma. So we have this complete uh, bubbling pop. Now I'm painting a pretty dark picture here. We get through this and work, but think about that constant barrage we have to go through in a day to day life. Now, my, my contention here is that people, vets and nurses are very, very resilient human beings. They would not, we would not be here today if we weren't, we wouldn't have got through COVID. If, as human beings, we were highly, highly resilient, but what isn't resilient is the organisations we work in, okay? They are the things. So all of these things are, come out of a business model that I don't think is really fit for purpose in many ways, and they can be moderated down and done differently. Throw a pandemic across that, and then you've got the perfect storm of stress, burnout, and anxiety that goes with it. So. In some ways, we can look at the vet model, and you see an awful lot going on out there of let's run resilience courses for vets, and let's um, teach them to be mindful, and let's teach them meditation, and we're doing all sorts of things to try and bring the people up to a level. Now, admittedly, there's some key things that need to go on, but these are more environmental, uh, industrial, veterinary mindset things, okay? Uh, many practices, see, don't have a sense of purpose or autonomy or mastery. They're just not well-managed, disorganisation. Um, vets tend to come through the scientific left-brain um, education system with a very fixed, inflexible left-brain scientific mindset, which doesn't give you broad emotional intelligence in many cases. Um, and just a, a if, question, question I'll put out, my one question for the evening at what age did you decide to become a vet? So what age did you first think, oh, yeah, mummy, I'm going to be a vet? Because I will guarantee most of you it was before you were 10 or 12, okay? So making that decision that early limits your capability of learning new skills and actually having a more flexible mindset. That's proven. What we also know is university further fixes that mindset, okay? So if you've come as many of us have done visit from primary school, secondary school, straight into college, straight into university, and done that process, you will probably have some fairly limited uh, exposure to real life in some ways. We're also taught that it's a non-commercial thing. Altruism kicks in again. We've got to be the very best clinicians we can, but we don't see business as an option. And what I've called mutability, just that availability of broadening personal and interpersonal um, activities that actually work in practice. We're a very insular lot. So that's sort of broad issues in the background. But now add to that this sort of slightly fragile um, identity that we have as vets, and it's called professional identity. Again, there's studies at the bottom of the pages that have gone through this. Add that a just a personal threshold of the sorts of people who become vets, generally altruistic, generally high-performing, generally highly intelligent because they have to be to get through the studies, okay, and highly motivated with parents who are highly motivated. Going into an environment of repeated trauma, which they weren't told about at college and weren't told about school, and a highly stressful environment dealing with um, clients who are also stressed, we haven't got a very pretty picture. Okay, So this is the dilemma Personally, I find I deal with in day in, day out, trying to get businesses to do better. And businesses are just collections of people. Not to be too dire on it. So here's my question. We are in this kind of situation moment. We've got re- reasonably stressed individuals. Even like if you don't feel it, there's stress there. Working generally reduced teams because you can't get enough vets, can't get enough nurses, in practice constraints of COVID and PPE and car park consulting and everything else. There's one boiler, um, boiler pot we're working at. Add to that clients who are also fearful, anxious, have this high client expectation of your altruism, their, their expectation of your social contract, their expectations of your expertise. So it's not just us that believe that. The world believes that helps us as well. Then put in the financial pressures and the demographic pressures and then COVID-19 pressures. We have a serious issue. So what can we do? We can either fix things in the practice, and we're certain we certainly should be doing that, but we all can also, where have we ever considered doing something about the clients? Because they're sort of the unknown quantity. They're the people that just keep coming through the door every day with no filter and no block on that. So I just want to sort of take us down that time. Summing all that up, what I see is there's basically three sorts of veterinary response to this is what I see in the consulting room. And that's our basic unit of, of veterinary activity and expertise. So there's the diagnosis orientated vets, the vets that need to be right and make the right diagnosis. These are the ones that run at you know the gold standard and also seem to, they seem to have a very clear view of what the dog, the patient and then the client need to do basically. There's then the compassion orientated vet. That gets absorbed in the emotion of the client and the patient needs. The altruism kicks in big time, okay, is really what works on this one. That's sort of the one of the other extremes. And then th- the third level is the bit in between, that what we call the challenge orientated vets. And they seem to be able to flex more, they've got more resilience, they've got more emotional flexibility to resolve the clinical and emotional needs of both. Takes more time takes more energy and if they don't take time out these ones will also go into burnout because they are giving a lot of energy in that emotional uh, control the first the diagnosed oriented vet is using minimal emotional control they're just using distance to, to get things second ones get sucked in by the client's emotional control and lose emotional control and the third ones get the balance so it looks a bit like this This is my model of a consultation that we need to deal with day in, day out. There's a clinical responsibility for the vet. The vet needs to deliver a diagnosis and a treatment plan and a prognosis and actually solve the problem, despite clients coming in with sheaves off Google, etc. That is entirely the vet's uh, uh, role to actually serve that clinical need within the consultation with discussion, with, with informed consent and everything else. Because the vet makes a clinical decision, that incurs a cost of money and convenience and time, basically, for the client, not for the vet, for the client at this point. The client has to stump up some money. It has to come back for a follow-up consultation. It has to invest time, effort, and energy into serving this, you know, solving this problem. Out. And those two problems, are: one is the vets and one is the clients. In reality, discussion necessary. The third part of that is there's a compliance discussion that needs to happen. The vet has to do stuff to help the pet get better. The client has to do stuff to help it get better. I've got to give it pills. I've got to wash it with this wash. I've got to put stuff in its ear. I've got to bring it back on Thursday. I've got to do stuff to make it happen. The vet has to fill in clinical notes and get medicines and and provide stuff. There's a compliance stuff to do. And that's a shared responsibility, okay? That's shared between the two. Then there's a compassion discussion okay, of actually understanding the emotion going on in this. Now, this tends to be the vet understanding the client's need and perhaps the patient's need, a feeling for them. And that's what we're told and taught at university. Compassion is a good thing. You're going to be a compassionate vet. Clients love a compassionate vet, and that needs to happen. No one has ever said the client needs to have compassion for the vet that seems to be out of the equation that doesn't seem to be but for me compassion is another shared responsibility that doesn't get due discussion generally this gets due assumption that the vet will step into this one And i think that's where some of the trap is so what i'd like to see clinical role that's what you need to do that's fair enough discussion there's a cost and implications of time for the client. Let's have a discussion about compliance. Let's have a discussion about compassion. Let's resolve this. And that's a good, well-run consultation. What I see is the diagnostic oriented vet who is you know, very dedicated to the patient, doing the right thing. You will do this. It's a patient's requirement. They sit there with a gold standard of diagnosis and treatment. But what they tend to do is they step back from the consultation process, um, being broad brush here, they leave the compliance and compassion and cost and convenience to the client. That's your problem is kind of what they say. So they've gone through, and I mentioned it earlier, this this almost vet depersonalization from the emotional content of it. That's what you need to do. That's the best information to have. I've told you what to do. Off you go. And in, interesting, that can vary between very poor clients dissatisfaction and sometimes quite high client satisfaction again this is where you get that paradoxical wave okay now when you get this if you do have that client dissatisfaction you then have to send all your vets off to a how to deal with angry clients course and deal with that that way and the problem is the client's just been left with all the issues um, and they probably have every right to be dissatisfied in some way and we've all done that at certain points That is the first stage of this disconnection, disengagement process. The compassion-orientated vet does quite the opposite. They are there with clinical care in mind. They're worrying about everything. They're worried about the client's um, welfare. They're worried about how much money the client's got. They're worried about if the client's going to cope. They're worried about this. And they bring this whole compassion thing, and they step right into the consultation process. They sacrifice themselves. Into that process, uh, to the point of their own detriment, in many, many ways. Now, again, paradoxically, that can make some clients really happy, really satisfied. Oh, they were reinvested. Don't know what happened to them. They burned out somewhere, or they actually feel quite dissatisfied because they're thinking they're not really. They're getting this overcaring, overbearing because people are different. So, what you get then is secondary traumatic stress by sitting in that equation: stress, burnout, compassion fatigue. Here's our litany of mental health issues uh, kicking in here because we haven't got the emotional resilience to to resist that so what are we looking for we're looking for this balanced consultation so we could spend a lot of work taking our vets and nurses taking them back to veterinary school taking them through all sorts of course and there's some good stuff out there of building resilience and helping and manage that process and that would be a good thing to do, but it's going to be almost impossible to do that with the profession. If we can get back into the veterinary schools, we can probably do more with that, but you can only get them so far. Don't forget, most of these vets are pretty resilient already. It's not their fault most of the time. They just have none, not learnt these skills, or that's someone's fault, but the, but the, the way the consultation is constructed and the number and the um, quality of clients is another factor. So just some tips here. Could we actually influence this model um, at both sides? Certainly teach vets resilience skills, mindfulness, um, emotional intelligence, a lot of stuff there that can help. But can we also actually push back on the client load a little bit and just say, hang on a minute, we've got too many clients and we've got too many of what I'd call the wrong clients. Can we do something about that? So in our thinking as vets, in our veterinary model, you may have all seen this in your, if you did any webinars over the COVID time, we talk about this locus of control. There's things I can control and I choose to focus on, and there's all this stuff outside, things I can't control, I can't do anything about. In our thinking, in business modelling of vets, clients sit in that area, that locus of things they can't control. The clients are going to come in. If they ring up, they're going to come in. That's it. I can't do anything about it. What I'm suggesting to people is change that mindset and put clients right in the middle of your locus of control. Clients are there at the behest of you, and you you let people through your door or through your car park as you choose. It's quite a serious decision to make, but it is the one thing that will make a difference to this whole equation. Now, this is a brilliant piece of work from the BVA. Hopefully you've all seen it, this good workplace, um, how to build a, a good veterinary workplace, health and wellbeing, diversity, workload, flexibility, which is great. These seven things you should be working on, there's no doubt about it. However, if you look at it, nowhere, nowhere does it say, why don't you control your client numbers and quality? Because I believe that one thing, will fundamentally shift the stress levels more than anything else on this. All these things are about fixing some of the things in the organisation. But I would suggest clients filtering is something we should do. Now, I'll immediately get a backlash here and say, well, you can't turn clients away. Yes, you can, okay, because if you don't, you're the one that's going to suffer. So, again, I won't have that argument tonight, but if it comes up to the questions... So here's my model for a well-run practice. These are the things we need to satisfy to run a good business. Commercial success, got to make some money and make a profit. Clinical resolution, we're going to make sure the animals get better and are given good medical and surgical options. We need client satisfaction. There it is, the one that we struggle so much with, okay? But we also need team harmony, team performance, team well-being. The culture has to be good as well, and that's what's gotten and I believe if we put the right client, however we define that, in the middle of this equation, this becomes so much easier. This becomes just so much easier to manage. And if I've learned anything of 40 years of practice management, this is probably it. Okay? So here's my suggestions. Here's a couple of things you can think about as um, filters up front of your business. Most of you are doing some sort of preventive health care, pet health club, wellness schemes, et cetera using that as a filter is a very very good way of actually uh, filtering through the mindset or the, the, the attitude to pet owning that you want in your clients okay we all recommend vaccines only 40 50 percent of clients actually vaccinate okay so there's something seriously wrong with going on there pet health insurance is i know it's outside of our remit in terms of how we recommend it and how we sell it and um, financial services etc however the not insistence on it, but certainly the highly recommendation of it again, isn't that they can afford to pay their bills? It's what it flags is the client's um, well, certainly ability to pay, but mindset around pet owning, and that's what we're trying to filter for. The best mindset around pet owning: I want to be dedicated to my pet and do the best thing. Therefore, your practice then can deliver that. Okay, it has other advantages in terms of your business. And then technology is the third one um, that is actually creates a safer space for us to interact with clients. Okay? So pet health clubs, the advantage of this, because what I'm suggesting is you should all be lowering your client numbers. Now, I bandy a figure around is that in the past we've we generally run practices at around about 1,000 to 1,200 active clients per bed. That is far, far too, in an annual basis, far too many. We are now suggesting you're bringing that down to 700, 800 or so active clients per vet. We've got practices working at five and 600 active clients per vet. And you might say, well, that's not enough clients to make enough money. No, it is if you actually impose some of these things because you need better pricing, better invoicing, and and picking up all the opportunities that that provides. Because at the moment, if you are running over a 1,000 active clients for that, you are probably missing work in a big way. Pet health clubs pick up a lot of that routine work. They improve basic health of pets, uh, better quality of life, greater longevity. They deliver a better client experience. So client experience is built into this as a process because they get to see your nurses and receptionists and the vets. And what we do know is... When clients experience veterinary teams, client satisfaction goes up. Um, and it also enhances client bonding, which means they come back more often and do more work and buy more products and services. So each client becomes more valuable in time. The evidence we've got for that is when you have a good, well-set-up pet health club, um, number of consults goes up by 127% on average, 72% increase in total revenue per client, per patient, um, increase in spend on preventative healthcare products, um, increased retention uh, year on year, increased number of transactions, all the factors are there that actually drive good business. But at the moment, most practices I see have 10, 15, 20% of their clients on these schemes. And doing. what if you made this scheme mandatory to do business with you? What difference would that make? Insurance, slightly different, like I said. But, again, the same things happen. Insured clients have higher average patient spend, okay, because they can pay for it, one thing, but they tend to come in more often. They visit the practices more regularly um, and higher, have average visit value, um, from, which means they spend more when they come in. Again, with the studies we've done, insured clients are 40% more likely to be retained. They stay in the practice for longer. 70% of patients who register with veterinary practice purchase insurance at recommendation. Again, insured clients can spend considerably more in practice. In the years that follow the first year in practice, which is interesting because it normally drops in uninsured um, patients, and insured puppies have a higher average spend, up to 50% when compared to non-insured puppies. Sounding like a pretty good deal to me, okay? If I want less clients more work, here are a couple of things that make that work immediately and just technology so we've had a, th- a slew of technology coming in we've had apps for getting clients in car park asynchronous communication we've had video consults we've had booking apps we've had um appointments and payment apps etc all these things would have maximize our safety through covid but they do that anyway maximize efficiency which took a little bit more They should be more convenient. They should certainly be more profitable. That's what technology should deliver. I would say in the veterinary space that hasn't always been the case, but it is certainly getting there as we go. If you remember back to my consultation model, um, technology actually has the ability to align that model as well. What you get is with technology, client convenience is then enhanced with clinical efficiency, okay, because we can do much more communication through the app. The compassion and the compliance become aligned through technology, okay? The fact you're giving information around compliance is then interpreted as compassion, Again, okay? this is from studies from some of the uh, pets app in particular have done a lot of work on this and show that that could be true, okay? If you give clear costs and you give people a way of paying it, easily and conveniently, they will pay instantly and pay upfront in some cases. So the cash is in the bank, okay, much quicker and clearer. So the client's getting what they want, the veterinary vet is getting what they want. But here's the key thing, the care of the pet is then aligned with the care of the vet as well. Why is that? Because what we create is a technological firewall between the client and the vet. We can actually control the communication Control the emotional content, control the ethical uh, information going backwards and forth through technology much better. Equally with technology, we tend to put in nurses and receptionists into things, so we can actually dilute it as well. And that's one of the biggest advantages. So this technology firewall is about your online bookings, email consents, video consults, prepaid bookings, uh, video updates, all the stuff you, you can see is possible. I think it should be mandatory as part of the next generation of veterinary practices because it actually improves team harmony, performance, and well-being Look into it as well, okay? So here's my suggestion is that we do have an excess of client capacity in the veterinary industry. There's 3.5 million puppies bought last year have to go somewhere. We have had a massive attrition from the profession in terms of vets and nurses, okay? Um, you know, if you... I think all of you need less clients, okay? Someone else is out there can serve them, but you need that not for any commercial reasons to protect your team is really the key thing, okay? Gaming and retaining the best new clients, if you're going to take any, you want to be the best ones. And, again, putting in the filters of preventive healthcare, um, pet health insurance and technology are the three things that will actually control that influx and flow. And, of course, technology will control your phone Input and all sorts of other things as well. Okay, so here's my contention: preventive healthcare plans, well run, and some of these now include consultations and other such things, which remove more of the friction of dealing with clients. Pet health insurance removes more friction. Technology removes the friction. Um, is really low stress, high quality veterinary work, as far as I can see. And we've got practices doing this. This isn't just theory. There's practices at work. Um, delivering this and getting these these benefits uh, as we speak and then what I hope for all of you is that the one single thing that you enjoy most about being in, a, in the veterinary profession is looking after animals and that's what you get back to and you get back to the enjoyment of that the pleasure of that and just back to the realization that being a vet or a nurse is still the very best job on this planet.